This episode of New Politics was released on the 5th of February, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wongal people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the avoidable COVID mayhem continues across most of Australia. 2022 is an election year and it seems the campaign has already commenced. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, horrible, horrible person, fraud and complete psycho. Just a bit of news about New Politics. We're now into our fifth year and we've got over 10,000 regular listeners. We did get as high as number five in the most popular Australian podcast last year. So we're not as popular as the Joe Rogan experience, but it's not about being popular. It's about being effective. And I think that's exactly what we're doing. So a big thank you to all of our listeners, including all of those political staffers who tell us how terrible we are, and also to all of those politicians listening who are threatening to sue us. But the good news is that we're not going anywhere. And if you're getting criticism from the government of the day, you must be doing something right. So, David, are we doing something right? I hope so. I I think my aim has been to just try and analyse facts and try and look at things from a policy point of view, which gets very difficult when there is no policy, of course. But I think despite all our claims of, you know, you're biased, and which we've said repeatedly, we know, what's your point? I think that we try and bring a more intellectual or at least intelligent approach to government analysis than a lot of other people manage. So I think if we've managed to do that, I think we've done okay. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. It's just $5 per month for the Ruby Standard Supporter level or $10 per month for the Gold Standard Supporter level. That's really not that much. It's the cost of a milkshake in one of those government advertisements. It's the cost of maybe, what else can we think of? Maybe a loaf of bread or a carton of milk or a few litres of petrol. It's actually less than the cost of a rapid antigen test. And we also do have a new t-shirt design available. It's the It's Time for Change t-shirt. But whether it's a subscription, if you just or if you just want to listen in, read our material online, or buy a t-shirt, or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au, and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. We released our last full episode of New Politics on December the 15th last year, and that's the day that New South Wales removed COVID restrictions. And on that day, there were 2,800 new COVID cases all across Australia. And then one month later, on January the 12th, there were 175,000 new COVID cases. And today, that number is around 37,000. Now, we did take a little bit of a break earlier this year because we thought, well, there's not that much that happens in January and surely the government knows what it's doing and everything should be okay. But turn you back for a minute and things get really out of control. And having so many sick people with COVID has opened up a wide range of other issues. Having that amount of people who are sick in the community means that people can't work. And guess what? Those workers also include supply chain workers, people who deliver services, essential workers in hospitals and aged care homes. And 
Rapid antigen tests have been in short supply and it's impossible to think of a way that the government could have mismanaged this crisis any further. Their arguments have been that nobody saw Omicron coming. That's not true. So many experts predicted this would be the outcome and so many people predicted that removing restrictions and not being properly prepared would have these bad outcomes. And they also warned that an unhealthy community will result in an unhealthy economy. Now, David, you and I were among those voices that strongly suggested that the mayhem that we're seeing in many parts of Australia was the obvious outcome of removing restrictions and not being prepared adequately. Should the government have listened to us? Not us, but the people we were listening to. The experts who were saying that there's another strain coming, it's far more uh, virulent, it's far more contagious. They're still arguing a bit on whether it's mostly milder than earlier variants but the numbers are such that that is almost irrelevant because there's still a countable percentage who go into hospital and who die and of course the number of acceptable deaths from this is zero the number of unavoidable deaths is probably not zero but we need to minimize those numbers and the closer it gets to zero the better it is and hopefully we can get it to zero they've totally watched it and they were warned, and they were warned at two levels. Experts, people who listen to experts, and I suppose a third level of the people who listen to the people who listen to the experts. So to say we didn't know and we couldn't have known is a weak and pathetic excuse. Now, it really has been a summer of discontent. Scott Morrison effectively promised an easy and safe holiday, and in reality, it was anything but. Many people in Sydney had to spend Christmas in isolation, either because they had coronavirus or they were waiting for their PCR tests, which were taking around four or five days to come through. Aged care facilities were locked down for a few weeks. Now, all of this wasn't directly caused by Scott Morrison. It was the fault primarily of the New South Wales government for ending those restrictions on December the 15th, but it was fully supported by Scott Morrison, the Liberal Party and the business community. Now, for sure, ideologically, if a government wants to fully open up and end restrictions, well, you would expect them to be prepared for the outcomes, that they'd ramp up testing clinics for the inevitable outcome. You'd expect them to open up vaccine clinics. You'd expect them to have rapid antigen tests to become widely available. So if your agenda was to let Omicron rip through the community, now you, you can't publicly come out and say that politically, but if that's what you wanted to achieve, you remove restrictions during a busy Christmas period, you close down testing clinics, you close down vaccine hubs, you make rapid antigen tests almost impossible to obtain, and then you go and tell people that they need to manage all of this by themselves. So it was either a deliberate process all along, or it's one of the biggest public policy failures in history. And that's not us saying that. They're the words of the former Liberal Party Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. Nothing has really gone right. Given that there's at least six countries who give the rapid antigen tests out for free, I think it's more than that, but uh, I saw an official report that said at least six. Given that in a lot of other countries, they're sold at cost, and the cost is somewhere between $3 and $11, depending on the type of test. To see them on sale for $15, which could be a, a markup of 400%, is just disgraceful. Now, there's an Australian company who's been shipping 100,000 off to the United States every week, I think. That's the type of thing that you'd think the Australian government would jump on. Right, let's buy from these people and let's promote 
good Australian ability and know-how. Instead, we get people saying, oh, they had to recall a lot. There was a manufacturing batch issue back in 2021 for one batch that they needed to recall, given how many batches they're doing. That's not actually too bad. So the government's defense of this is lacking. Its rollout is definitely lacking. I hear reports of people who are allegedly eligible for free ones, and they did eventually acknowledge that maybe people on um, pensioner cards should get them for free. And apparently a lot of chemists don't have them for free yet. And again, I'm suspecting that it's not because the chemists are necessarily profiteering, but it's because they can't afford to wait for a government payment that might be six or 12 months away. And so they want the stock that they've sorted out and that they've been redeemed for. Again, on no level has it even started to work quietly. Now, I guess there's a thing where he's waiting for it to work a lot better closer to the election in the hope that he can wipe out the memory. There's only so much memory you can wipe out. And with the more people have died in January of 2022 from COVID than died throughout all of 2021. And these aren't memories that get erased. And it's getting to the point where not only will we all know dozens of people with COVID or even get it ourselves, it's getting to the point where we will know people who have died from it. And that's a memory that you can't cover over with finally good distribution closer to the election. And the way that these rapid antigen tests have been used politically has been absolutely appalling. Now, it's obvious that there were supply issues, but the government seemed to be using the tests as a de facto business stimulus package. And they were appearing in some very odd places and at very highly inflated prices. So they were appearing in phone repair shops, tobacconists, electronic stores, Harvey Norman as well, everywhere else except for pharmacists. And it's almost like a case where the government created this artificial inflated market by increasing demand and reducing supply. The result in New South Wales generally has been that the New South Wales government was listening to the voice of business and not the community. There were businesses complaining incessantly about the need to end restrictions late last year to open up as soon as possible. And then when everything opened up, people weren't prepared to go out after the case numbers rose. And then workers of different businesses ended up getting sick. And then they started complaining about opening up too early and that they weren't getting enough customers. So perhaps overall, it was really a case of listening to the credible health experts. And it was all about keeping people safe. But what they ended up with was the worst of both worlds, a sick workforce and a sick economy. Sometimes you do have to look at the bigger picture and not just stick rigidly to your ideological pursuits or just listen to your political donors. You need to look at the bigger picture. And that's what the New South Wales government failed to do. It is clear that the elected ministers in charge federally and the elected ministers in charge at a state level in New South Wales are not up to the job. They lack intelligence. They lack experience. They lack discernment. They lack wisdom. They lack any of the things that good leadership requires. It's to the point where I really don't think it's worth engaging intellectually with them because there's nothing to engage with. The old joke about never going into battle of wits with them because I dislike battling an unarmed opponent is really it. And I know I'm going to get feedback of, oh, you're being too hard on them or, oh, you know. And in fact, even saying that, I'm not sure that we'll get that anymore. I think that the public has moved. Once 
the stupid policies came out. And the one in particular is getting 16-year-olds to drive forklifts. You can't just hop on a forklift and drive it. You've got to be shown how to steer it. It steers differently to a car. The steering mechanism is in the back. Lifting appropriate weights, lifting, balancing it, stacking it properly, all of that is part of it. So what sounded like a Jerry Harvey idea, oh, I can't get any stuff, let's get the bludging 16-year-old, filtered through Morrison at National Cabinet and clearly treated with the disdain it deserved. The way he said, oh, it did not progress further, was not the words of a man who'd worked through an idea and seen it beaten down for good reasons. That It was a stupid idea that was, I almost bet, was laughed off the table. Also, I just want to add there, I think that was his onion-eating moment or his GST cake-eating moment or his incentivation moment. Those moments where chipping away at your credibility and suddenly it's all gone. Maybe the real Julia moment was that for the, the Gillard government, just to show that it can happen on both sides. And it can happen to decent candidates. But once you lose control of the narrative... And Morrison understands this too. He's always tried to control the narrative, which most prime ministers have. His obsessive control of it, though, has backfired because he doesn't know how to construct a narrative. And it worked on a superficial level. But once people started digging into it, the ideas got wilder and, and less sensible. And here we are. Well, speaking of controlling that message, one consistent factor in all of this has been the government pushing out the message that Nobody could have predicted the onset of Omicron and the government was blindsided and couldn't have done anything to stop the spread. Now, you referred to this before, but once again, this is a failure of leadership and a failure to take up that responsibility. Governments are massive organisations and massive institutions and they do have the resources and the personnel available to assess all of these situations. The community can't do it all by itself, but that's why governments exist. The government has to, and they should do risk assessment about this sort of process. Maybe they did and decided to overlook all of the risks that were involved, but Omicron first appeared in early November in South Africa, and you'd expect that in this situation, the government would pull out all stops to ensure that the threat was reduced, but they just didn't do this. They've had two years to prepare for new quarantine centres in Perth, Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne, but this still hasn't happened. Rapid antigen tests, of course. You know, the government is blaming the Therapeutic Goods Administration for not approving rapid antigen tests. And for sure, you know, the TGA is a body that tests quite thoroughly, but they were approved for use in the United States in February 2021. That's a year ago. So why did it take so long in Australia? Now, we do like to be fair here, even if the government is not being fair to us. And initial testing by the TGA has shown that only one of the 23 rapid antigen tests were adequately detecting the Omicron variant. But the upshot here is that there was a lack of consistency and urgency. If there were delays at the TGA, well, you provide them with all the resources to accomplish their work. That's what the role of government is. But it seems that in this case, a lazy government that was feeling little pressure coming in from the media, and they just felt that they could lie their way out of anything. And we're seeing the results of this process where there's a government that is just happy to lie its way out of anything and very little media pressure until recently. There's chaos in the community, chaos in the economy, and a government that has almost lost all of its political capital. And if only they did the work that was expected of them, in the first place, they wouldn't be in this amount of political trouble. Yeah, they are small government and that particular US very small government libertarian, that government shouldn't be 
anywhere, that government should be taken down and business should really run everything. We see the absolute flaws. Those of us who'd studied government, those of us who'd studied political science, those of us who had studied history and all the other subjects, knew that you need some level of public administration. The reason that Harvey Norman gets the rats, the reason that it's all private enterprise, and if private enterprise makes a profit from that, then well done. The thing is, is that some things just shouldn't be profit. Some things should just be done. Health, education, law and order, infrastructure. When they start to be pushed for profit, things go horribly wrong. In the same way, there's certain things government shouldn't do. Government shouldn't be manufacturing things. The private enterprise does that pretty well on the, for the most part. We've found that the Morrison-Perrottet model of no government has failed, partly because both of those men are failures anyway, but partly because it was a model that was never going to work. And we know that now, and hopefully the next couple of elections will reflect the desire of the Australian people to have government where it's required and good government where it's required, which we've mostly had up until 2013. Now, we've mainly been talking about all of the problems that have been happening in the eastern states of Australia, but there's one state that shines like a beacon in this summer of discontent, and that's Western Australia. A perfect summer in WA, apparently it's been a little bit hot over there, but they backtracked on their decision to open up to the eastern states in February. And when the West Australian Premier Mark McGowan made this announcement on January the 20th, Australia had new COVID case numbers of 63,000 and a seven-day average of 79,000 and 88 deaths. And when Mark McGowan made this announcement to backtrack on the opening up of Western Australia, the media and business community had a field day, attacking Mark McGowan for his backflip. And of course, they interviewed all the disgruntled micro-businesses around Western Australia, complaining about how their businesses will be destroyed by this decision. And of course, there are businesses that will be largely impacted by this decision, and some will actually go out of business. And this decision does affect me personally. I can't go and see family in Perth, but it's not about me. It's not about these businesses that are going to fail. It's about protection of the community and the protection of the economy. So at the moment, Western Australia has got a handful of COVID cases. It's around 10 or 12 today, I believe. Its economy is looking at 3.5% growth in the coming year. Unemployment is very, very low. Businesses are open and flourishing. And the community is going about all the activities that it normally wants to get into. Now, we can argue about whether Western Australia has prepared their hospitals adequately for Omicron or not. But it seems that Western Australia is having the best of both worlds, a healthy population and a healthy economy. Now, you can't really blame them for looking over at the eastern states and saying, well, no, we don't want that. We don't want the chaos that's happening over there. No, thanks. We don't want 88 deaths per day. We don't want to put at risk vulnerable communities. So it does affect me personally. It does affect some businesses in Western Australia and possibly some outside of Western Australia. The Western Australian government might lose some political capital over this, but Mark McGowan seems to be doing the right thing in Western Australia. Yeah, it's clear that he's doing the right thing. And Australia is an island. It would have been quite simple to have had minimal impact by just closing the borders. For a government that brags about its strength on borders, the borders aren't that strong. Another failure. The numbers in Western Australia are on the tens, I think, or the dozens. In 
New South Wales and Victoria, they're in the tens of thousands. Mark McGowan was absolutely right. Now, for the businesses that go down, I, I hope that there is adequate support, and I believe that they are supporting people. And, of course, when this is all over, there's going to be a, an economic boom. The few respites we've had, I've seen an uptick in my income come through, and, and a significant one, then it gets closed down again. I love Dominic Perrottet. He's such a bright individual. <laughs> But when it does end, and we'll still have outbreaks and flare-ups, but they'll become further and further apart, I think. No thanks to the federal or the New South Wales state government. But I think McGowan's doing the right thing and staring down the rest of Australia so that people who have no intention of going to Western Australia can go to Western Australia if they choose is the right thing at this point. When the numbers are down, when it's back manageable again, we can all have a look at it again and see if they're doing the right thing or not the right thing. But at the moment, I think he has done exactly the right thing. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Coming up on New Politics. How has the election year started off for Scott Morrison and for Anthony Albanese? And, it might not be possible, but can the Liberal Party be rescued in time for the next federal election? Every election year commences with a presentation from the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition at the National Press Club in Canberra, and their respective presentations seem to reflect upon how these leaders are travelling in the current opinion polls. The Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, has had an image makeover during the holiday period and presenting himself as a credible alternative Prime Minister, whereas the actual Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is starting to be taken to task over mismanagement of the pandemic and poor performance and is being asked these kinds of questions. Peter Van Onselen, Network 10. Prime Minister, at the start of your speech, you mentioned your close friendship with Maurice Payne. Mm. Uh, I wanted to ask you about another close friend, Gladys Berejiklian, mm. uh, and somebody that you wanted to run, actually, at the next election. Mm. I've been provided with a text message exchange between the former New South Wales Premier mm -hmm. and a current Liberal Cabinet Minister. I've got them right here. In one, she describes you as, quote, a horrible, horrible person going on to say she did not trust you and you're more concerned with politics than people. The minister is even more scathing, describing you as a fraud and, quote, a complete psycho. Does this exchange surprise you? And what do you think it tells us? Well, I don't know who you're referring to. 
um, or the basis of what you've put to me. Um, but I obviously don't agree with it, and I don't think that's my record. Now, that's a classic gotcha question, and we've had our issues with Peter Van Onselen in the past, as have many other people, and journalists shouldn't be presenting unverified material to any political leader, but it does show that when the media smells blood in the water, they'll go on the attack, irrespective of which side of politics they support. And, of course, the responsibilities of an opposition are not the same as being the leader of government. But Albanese is combining valid points of attack on the government and the broad brush strokes of what a Labor government might look like, and he looks quite comfortable doing that. Whereas Morrison is a leader under immense pressure for the first time in his prime ministership, and he doesn't seem to know what to do. Here's the first question from Laura Tingle. She was the moderator of that National Press Club session. Thank you, Prime Minister, for that very extensive address. Um, It's a new year. So a good opportunity to clear the air. Uh, You've acknowledged today you didn't get everything right Mm. and that you understand the frustration people have felt over the summer. Mm. But do you want to take this opportunity to actually say sorry for the mistakes you've made as Prime Minister? Not just about uh, COVID, everything from going to Hawaii during the bushfires through to not having uh, enough rapid antigen tests in place, even as you foreshadowed the switch to a greater use of them and for failing to live up to your pledge to hundreds of thousands of people on the NDIS that you would make sure the scheme was fully funded, uncapped and demand driven. And will you uh, apologise to people who've had, the hundreds of people who've had funding arbitrarily cut under the scheme? Well, thanks for the question. (laughs) Always happy to ask you questions, Prime Minister. Yep. We're all terribly sorry for what this pandemic has done to the world and to this country. These are the times in which we live and I've set out today, I think, very clearly the challenges that we've faced. In his responses for most of the National Press Club address, you could see that Morrison was fuming, barely concealing his anger. He seemed to be flustered and unable to respond adequately. And election that is going to be held in May is never going to be won in February, so there's still a long way to go. But should the coalition be worried about their prospects at the next federal election? I'm starting to think they are. You can never underestimate the levels they'll go to to hand on to power. And also, you can never underestimate Labor to get it wrong and stumble at the last second for whatever reason. And there's a whole range of reasons that we can go through. Having said that, I am seeing the disengaged becoming engaged. That's a big worry for somebody like Morrison, who wants people to see him as the daggy dad figure, which I think is a extremely mediocre and problematic approach to take. And so you see him reading his daughter's poem at the citizenship ceremony, and you see him building chook pens, and you see him making curry on a Saturday night. You don't see him do a lot of work. You don't see him make a lot of smart or wise decisions. You don't see him seem engaged with the actual work of Prime Minister, which, again, until 2013, for all the criticisms you could have of John Howard, he always took the role very seriously. He always did the work required. Now, again, whether it was the work he should have been doing is a whole other question. But if 
we'd been running the podcast and, and got up and said, oh, John Howard doesn't do any work, we'd have been laughed off the platform. We can say that about Scott Morrison. If things go wrong, he's absent. If things don't go his way, he blames other people. If things don't work, it's not his fault. There's no taking of responsibility. There's no preparing for things to go wrong and and there's no genuine governance going on. And that's okay if they're disengaged to tend to vote for the status quo because, oh, he's prime minister, he must be doing okay. But when the disengaged start to notice, when the disengaged start using terms that I won't use here about the incumbent specifically, I think he might be in a lot of trouble. Now, if the election is in May and, and the election hasn't been called yet, that is a long time. But again, I think there's just been too much chipping away at credibility and legitimacy to turn around from here. Even if the polls are wrong, they're not that wrong. They're 4% out, maybe 5% out, which is still an unwinnable position for him. I don't think it's going to be a Western Australian wipeout. I think you've said, Eddie, that it you'd think it'd be closer to the 2017 landslide in Western Australia. And I think that's right. The ship of state takes a long time to turn around. I think the centre-right independents are probably the way that uh, we're going to point next election campaign, that people will vote for Labor's less progressive policies. I think they will vote for in safe Liberal seats. They're not going to vote for Labor which is why I'm still astounded that they'd put up such a strong Labor candidate in the seat of North Sydney. I'd have put that candidate in the seat of Bennelong, which Labor knows is winnable, whereas North Sydney I don't think will ever be winnable by Labor. But I could be wrong, we'll see what happens. I think the disengaged are engaged, and for a Prime Minister like Scott Morrison, that's a dangerous and bad situation to be in. It's a great situation for... Australia, because the more of us who are engaged in this stuff, the less they can get away with. But if you are a Scott Morrison Prime Minister, it's a very bad situation. Quite often we are critical of the mainstream media in the way that they generally side with the conservative side of politics, and that includes the ABC. But many of the journalists at the National Press Club, they were lining up to ask questions of Scott Morrison that were critical of his performance. They were asking the difficult questions. And in some cases, actually quite a few cases, they were very hostile questions. And then Morrison just delivered the same word sellers that he's been delivering for the past three and a half years. And Morrison, during the time of his prime ministership, he has had the media in his pocket for a long, long time. And They've actually done him, in my opinion, they've actually done him a disservice by not asking those hard questions and not being overly critical of the Liberal national government when they definitely should have been critical of them. And because Morrison really hasn't been carefully scrutinised by the media pretty much until this week, he's not used to those difficult and uncomfortable questions. And he's never been called to account. He's never been held to account. But this week, he was flummoxed. He was shown to be out of his depth. And because he hasn't had that practice and experience of dealing with the hostile media that you'd normally ex- expect a prime minister to do, he just appears as not being across his brief. He appears frazzled. He appears to be under pressure. And that's a very bad sign for any political leader. Here's a comparison between the two speeches from Anthony Albanese and Scott Morrison at the National Press Club. Australia can emerge from this once-in-a-century crisis better, stronger, more fair and more prosperous. It requires leadership that brings Australians together. Protecting the health of Australians will be a defining issue 
in the upcoming election. And a critical choice will be this. Who do you trust to keep Medicare safe? Only Labor will protect Medicare. The states have done a great job in picking up the slack from the slackest government in living memory. In a recent profile, when asked to reflect on his time in office, Mr Morrison suggested that he is not interested in leaving a legacy. For him, leaving no legacy is a conscious choice. I find this pretty remarkable. If given the opportunity, I want to make a real difference for the people of our nation and to strengthen the nation itself. It is beyond comprehension that this government has actively refused to learn from this pandemic. This government has failed repeatedly on testing, tracing, vaccinations and quarantine. The grand slam of pandemic failure. So that was Anthony Albanese and here's Scott Morrison. It has been tough raising your family, keeping your job, doing your job. And I don't doubt many have stayed awake at night after telling their kids or those they care for or those they employ, it's all going to be okay. But wondering themselves in the quiet of that night whether it really will be. We're all terribly sorry for what this pandemic has done to the world and to this country. When I say we haven't got everything right, let me reflect on a couple of them for you. As we went into the summer, I think we were too optimistic perhaps, and we could have communicated more clearly about the risks and challenges that we still faced. And I think in raising those expectations about the summer, that we heightened the great sense of disappointment that people felt. You don't have to say sorry about any of those things. I think I've explained my answer fairly fully. I haven't got everything right. And I'll take my fair share of the criticism and the blame. It goes with the job. But with hindsight, the view does change. And lessons are learned. Lessons that will continue to be invaluable to me and so many of my team are here with me today and those who are out there with Australians in their communities to deal with the challenges and uncertainties that are still definitely ahead. Now, it seems that the media has started to turn on Scott Morrison, but we do have to remember that very few people actually watch the National Press Club addresses. There will be glimpses of it shown in news broadcasts, maybe for the next week or two, but the message of the Prime Minister being called a complete psycho by one of his ministers is probably not the best way to start off an election year. That's the type of thing that cuts through, too. I think the onion-eating moment was the kids on forklifts. Most people who deal with forklifts who might have voted for him won't vote for him now. (laughs) Having said that, and we don't officially know who the cabinet minister was, there's been a whole lot of rumours flying around as to who it was, narrowing down to really one candidate. I haven't seen any proof apart from some circumstantial stuff. I'd hate to sort of say it was definitely Senator X or MHR X. Well, David, we don't want to be sued, do we? And we don't want to be sued, no. (laughs) That's true too. Yeah, I have no evidence as to who it might be, but there's a sense in which it doesn't matter who it was, that at least one member of the cabinet could call him that in such terms over the last couple of years. One makes us question the judgment of the Liberal Party that they'd put such a guy in, but also shows the level of contempt he's held in 
he kept going on about his great friendship with Gladys Berejiklian. That clearly was not reciprocated. I think that's the fairest way of putting it. And of course, you might say, oh, she's done those in frustration and it, it was a one-off and she got it off her chest and so did the other one and that was that. She could have rung her friend, and I presume it's a friend, and said, look, could we not leak those? I was in a bad mood that day. She hasn't denied sending them. She's denied remembering sending them. Uh, we've seen you deny things before, Gladys. But that aside, that type of thing does cut through. Peter Van Onselen might be trying for his Mike Willisy moment of bringing down John Hewson. His credibility has taken a massive hit uh, with his dealing of the Grace Tame matter and uh, his support of Christian Porter, etc., etc. Again, I don't want to enter into any more than that, except that I know that there are a lot of people who who do not like him because of those things. Uh, I don't think that's defamatory. I think that's just the fact, an easily ascertained fact. I make no further comment on it. I think we may have seen the very last vestige of credibility, and we can trace it right back to the bushfires before the pandemic in that time a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away where we weren't in a pandemic and he flew to Hawaii during the middle of one of the biggest crises Australia's ever had. His credibility has been taking a knock slowly and slowly and slowly since then. Now, if we'd had a decent mainstream media, he'd have gone then. He'd have been forced to step down, but they've protected him and they've realised that there are no more chances there are no more ways out. There is nothing more to be gained from supporting him. And so he's lost the mainstream media. And as a lot of his strategy was good press, I don't know what he's going to do. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. All of these issues were kick-started by the release of the news poll during the week and that just confirmed the numbers that have been published in other recent polls and they show that the coalition is polling at 44% in two-party preferred voting and 56% for the Labor Party. Scott Morrison's net approval rating is minus 19, whereas Anthony Albanese's rating is at zero. And the preferred Prime Minister rating is almost equal. So statistically, these are very bad numbers for Scott Morrison. They're very, very bad. And when politicians say, oh, you know, we don't look at the polls and the only poll that counts is on election day, well, of course they care about the polls. They live and die by the polls. And whether people think that they're accurate or not, it's a little bit like a school report card. It's not the final result, but it gives you a good idea about how your political party is travelling and the Liberal and National parties are not travelling 
travelling very, very well at the moment. And there's also other issues that are causing problems for Scott Morrison within New South Wales, and that's his home state. And that's also a state where he was hoping to either hold seats at the next federal election or actually pick up seats. And there's a pre-selection battle in the seat of Warringah. A few candidates have resigned. And there's the current battle between the moderates and the religious right of the party. And that's a combination of Pentecostals, Opus Dei, Catholics and other conservative Christian groups. They're anti-democratic and they want to take over the Liberal Party. That's what they've already done in Victoria. So the Liberal Party just does not seem to be a very happy place at the moment. It's hard to see how things will improve for them. There's rumours circulating that Paratay will be dumped within the next month or so. I don't know that that's true and I don't think that it's true. I don't think he will make it to the election. I think it'll take a bit longer than that. But the fact that those rumours have already started circulating doesn't bode well for him. The Liberal Party is in dire straits. Now all parties go through this. Liberal Party's been through it several times where It needs a rethink. It needs to centralise. It needs to remove certain elements from its policies and bring in different elements. And and you can't really do this in government. One of the reasons Labor is ready to govern is because after the Rudd-Gillard, Rudd-Gillard years, they sat down and they sorted things out. And this is probably where Bill Shorten's great strength was. Same with Simon Crean in the uh, late 90s, 2000s. They were able to reform the party and as opposition leaders did a great job. And it's a shame because great candidates like Julia Gillard probably don't get their due. As a result, though, Labor is ready to govern. There's not a lot of internal wars There's not a lot of the huge egos, little talents that undermined the government while they were there. There's not as many seat warmers as there were. There probably still are. And if they return to government, we'll be targeting them. Don't worry. But compared to the rabble on the other side. Now, again, the disengaged don't notice this. But now they're engaging. They will have a look at the other side and say, oh, actually, this isn't too bad. Well, every political party does have its issues. And of course, the Liberal Party in New South Wales and probably nationally is having quite a few issues going on there. But we can talk about opinion polls and those sort of background issues pretty much forever. But nothing beats the hard results of actual votes being cast and actual elections being called. And we've got a few real world tests coming up. And there are four by-elections in New South Wales just next week in the seats of Willoughby, Eden, Monero and Strathfield. And I live in the seat of Strathfield, and I can tell you that voters aren't just waiting with their baseball bats. They've got cricket bats, golf clubs, rotten tomatoes, dirty underwear, the kitchen sink. They are so unhappy with the New South Wales government. And by-elections are generally the time that voters can show their displeasure at the government of the day, knowing that their vote probably won't change the government. But what they can do is show how angry they are. And I think there might be a few surprises in these New South Wales by-elections. There's also a state election in South Australia coming up on March the 19th. And and of course, state elections and by-elections... They do have different issues and different characters when compared to federal elections, but we'll have a good idea of what will happen to the Liberal Party at the next federal election once the New South Wales by-elections and the South Australian state elections are over. And unless there's some kind of challenge to Morrison's position, which is unlikely, but you can never rule these sort of things out in the Liberal Party. Now, David, you and I 
spoke about the possibility of a Liberal Party leadership spill towards the end of last year. And we were rubbish for even thinking about this possibility. But mainstream commentators are now openly suggesting that this could end up being the case. Now, many people are also pointing to the new Liberal Party rules stipulating that two-thirds of the party room are needed just to call for a leadership spill. But it doesn't have to be in the one go. And even if a leadership spill was called and it gets anything above 50%, even though if it's short of that required 66%, Morrison would be a dead man walking. You can't lead a party into an election with more than 50% of the party against you and expect to win that election. No, what they need really is a Bob Hawke type figure, a national figure with charisma and electoral appeal. And they just do not have that. No, they kind of did with... Malcolm Turnbull, who really wasn't up to the job anyway. And look how they treated him. Now, again, Turnbull was no Bob Hawke. I don't think it's unfair to admit that he's a fairly charismatic figure and he had a national profile. Everyone knew who he was. I can't think of another candidate. The rightish figures I can think of with a national profile won't be interested in cleaning up a party. They'd want to go in as prime minister. I think it might be too late. Uh, and my opinion might change on this is with the daily cut and thrust of politics. But, you know. Well, there's always a possibility that circumstances will change. But just looking back historically, no incumbent government has pulled back from this electoral position 100 days out or so from an, an election and then gone on to win that election. And, you know, I'm not saying that it can't be done, but it just hasn't been done before. And, and of course, there's a lot of writers on that. The polls can be wrong, as we discovered back in 2019. How will the pandemic affect campaign strategies? How will a high postal vote affect the final result? And there's still many, many events, both internally and externally, that can affect the final result. And we can look at what happened in 2001, when Kim Beasley's Labor Party was expected to win that election, but was overtaken by 9-11 and the Tampa incident that was highly and heavily exploited by John Howard. Paul Keating won an election from a worse position in 1993. John Howard won two elections from a worse position in 1998 and 2001 but not so close to an election as Morrison is to the 2022 election. So it's just a question of what can change, and things can change when they're least expected. But Morrison has already started this campaign as a rerun of the 2019 campaign. So far, we've had Morrison cooking in curry. You referred to some of these issues. He's been baking in Barramundi, talking about Jen and the girls, reading that poem from his daughter in public. And the latest has him kissing the noses of koalas and splashing the cash for the Great Barrier Reef. When it comes to meeting the nation's leader, it seems there's quite a lot a koala can bear. Oh, she's in there. <laughs> Australia Zoo star Brandy was given cuddles, pats, even a nose kiss. Yes, you've got a lovely nose. <laughs> As 50 million was pledged to help the rest of her kind. We love to throw our arms around koalas. And what this is about is continuing to throw our arms around our koala population. Numbers have halved in Queensland in the past two decades, dropping nearly 60% in New South Wales. The black summer bushfires claimed 6,500 little lives and urban sprawl continues to take a heavy toll. Experts fear the national icon could be extinct by 2050. 20 million will go towards habitat restoration. 
to use drones to seed trees in new koala habitat. There's 10 million for community projects and 2 million towards health outcomes, including the chlamydia vaccine rollout. $1 million has also been allocated towards expanding national training for veterinarians and nurses to ensure they have the most up-to-date skills to treat and triage koalas. But as always, prevention is better than cure, and it's hoped the other measures will see less in here and more out in the wild. But the opposition says the government's just trying to up its green credentials. This crowd pleaser coming a day after its $1 billion refunding commitment. That was a disgusting piece of propaganda, which was just littered with government talking points and sounding like a government media release. And that report came from the ABC, which should be producing far better material than that. But, you know, that's beside the point. My point is that running with this type of campaign did work for Scott Morrison in 2019, but it's just not going to work in 2022. The PR promotion process where mini lifestyle docos emerged into government funding announcements, the, the electorate is over that. And of course, this sort of process will influence some people in their voting intentions and their voting preferences. But overall, and especially after what they've been through over the past two years, the electorate wants something else from their political leadership. Now, Morrison might have rat cunning and survival instincts, but he might not have the intellectual capacities to go outside what he already knows, and that's to do slick PR promotions and throw money around. And, and if that's all he's got, well, at the next federal election, he is just going to go down in flames. It's hard to think otherwise, and I'm sure that there are members of the Liberal Party seriously considering these options now. Again, there's no one in the party who can take over. Frydenberg is likely to lose Kuyong as it stands at the moment. Dutton is loathed outside of Dixon and loathed within the party apparently. Birmingham has failed to impress since probably 2012. And he's also in the wrong house. And he's in the wrong house. Of course, John Gorton went down from the Senate to the um, House of Representatives to get Harold Holt's old seat, although, of course, that was totally different circumstances. Tehan, I mean, Maurice Payne is possibly the best choice of the other women, Makaya Cash and Suzanne Lay, and I, I just don't see them being electorally uh, successful enough. I doubt there'll be a spill because there's just no one who's going to improve the position to where they can even save some of the seats. Again, things can and do change. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. <laughs>